Welcome to The Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This radio program is a verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible. And on today's edition of The Word for Today, Pastor Chuck continues with experiencing the work of God as we pick up in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 3. And now, with today's message, here's Pastor Chuck. To anyone who experiences the work of God in his life, because people are prone to look at the instrument rather than at God, the one who is using the instrument, and begin to give glory and credit to the instrument rather than to God. And thus the instrument has to be very careful that it doesn't take glory, that it doesn't take credit. So Paul the apostle said, I keep my body under. I buffet myself and keep my body under. Under what? Under control, under the spirit. Lest having preached to others, I myself should be put on the shelf. And so it is important that when God works in your life, you don't begin to get some kind of spiritual pride and spiritual righteousness saying, well, it's because I'm so sweet or I'm so holy or I'm so righteous or I'm so committed. God has done this for me. God said, hey, don't get that kind of a frame of mind. When you come into the land and you're possessing the land and you're dwelling there, then don't think, well, it's because we're so righteous, we're such a holy people, God gave us this land. That isn't the reason. Because we were more righteous than those that are there and so forth. God said, it isn't your holiness and it isn't because you are so righteous that I'm giving you the land. It's really because these people are so vile and so impure, I'm just driving them out. Understand, therefore, that the Lord thy God gives thee not this good land to possess it for thy righteousness, for you're a stiff-necked people. Sound like Romaine, doesn't it? (laughs) Our Moses. And then he reminds them of their stiff-neckedness. How that They provoked God so many times when they just left Egypt. They they weren't even out of the land of Egypt when they provoked God the first time. And now all the way through, they were continually provoking God. And so he reminds them uh, of of how he had to intercede more than once, lest God would have wiped them out. And so he reminds them the, the burnings, Tabara, verse 22, the Masa and Kibroth Hatavah, the graze of lust, the place of temptation where God was provoked against them. And also at Kadesh Barnea. And he said, you have been a rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. From the beginning. Therefore, it isn't for your righteousness that the Lord is doing this or the uprightness of your heart. But actually, God has given a promise unto your fathers, to Abraham and to Jacob, and God is just fulfilling his promise to your fathers, but you're a bunch of stiff-necked, rebellious people. In chapter 10, he continues of their failures during the wilderness experiences. 
And he is reminding them of the failure at the time when God had given to him the, the law on the two tables of stone. And how that when he came down from the mountain, that the people had made this golden calf and were worshiping it. And how the tables of stone were broken. And so he was commanded by the Lord to take two more tables of stone. And for another 40 days and 40 nights in fasting without water or bread, there on the mount before God, and God wrote on the tables according to the first writing, the Ten Commandments, verse 4, in the mount in the midst of the fire. And the Lord gave them unto me. And so how that the Lord led them. And then in verse 12, the question and now, Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee? This is a question that every one of us should be concerned with. What does God require of me? As soon as I conclude in my mind that God does exist, and let me suggest that it is much easier to believe that God exists than to not believe that God exists. I don't know how many of you saw that sunrise this morning. Ooh, it was absolutely glorious. I don't see how anybody could look at that sunrise and, and not believe that God exists. When you start thinking of the whole process of the universe. When you start thinking of the processes of life, it's much easier to believe that God exists than not to believe that God exists. So when you come to the conclusion that God exists, and that conclusion is easily derived at when you look at man, and you realize all of the intricacies that make up just the first cell of man. And you see our capacities. You realize that God exists because no one but God could create an instrument such as our body except one who has all wisdom and all knowledge an omniscient God. Now, if God created me, he must have created me for a purpose. Therefore, what does God require of me? I don't believe that God would have just created man and just said, here you are, now you're on your own. That having been created by God, I have certain obligations and responsibilities to my Creator. What are they? Hear, O Israel, this is what the Lord requires of you. To reverence the Lord thy God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you this day for thy good. Well, that's pretty heavy. 
What does God require? That you reverence him, that you walk in all of his ways, that you love him and serve him with all your heart and all your soul. You say, well, I failed in that. What now? That you keep all of his commandments, that you walk in all of his ways, that you reverence him. We haven't done it. As the Bible said, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Does that mean that it's all over, there is no hope for me? No. God has an alternate plan. Because man was not able to fulfill God's requirement, and this is God's ideal requirement. This is how God would have you to live and God would have every man to live. And let me suggest if every man lived according to this requirement, we'd have one fantastic, beautiful world. If every man was walking in the ways of God, loving God, loving each other as they love themselves, and walking in full harmony with God, what a fabulous world this could be. But man failed. And rather than reverencing God, man so often blasphemes God. Rather than loving and serving, man is rebelling against him. And we also fail to walk in all of his ways and to love and serve him as we should. So, does that mean we're lost? There's no hope? No. In the New Testament, they came to Jesus with the question, what must we do to do the works of God? Same idea, what does God require of us? What must we do to do the works of God? And Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he hath sent. Praise the Lord, I can do that. Though I failed in the ideal requirement, yet I can now fulfill the actual requirement of God. What does God actually require of me tonight? That I believe in his son, Jesus Christ. All right, I can handle that. Now, to me, it's fabulous that that's what God requires of me. That I just believe in the provisions that he has made for my sin by sending his son. Believe in him whom he hath sent. Now, as I believe in Jesus Christ, I receive a new dynamic for life. For Christ comes in and begins to indwell me. And as he comes in and indwells me, he by his indwelling power and presence begins to give me the strength, the ability to live according to God's divine ideal. He gives me now the strength to walk in the ways of righteousness. He gives me now the love that I need for God. 
He begins to work now in me, doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. You see, God hasn't really given up on the divine ideal, but now he, through Christ, is giving me the capacity to fulfill the divine ideal. But I have fulfilled God's requirement for me the moment I believed in Jesus Christ. The moment I committed my life to him, I fulfilled God's requirement for me. So we look at God's ideal requirement in the Old Testament and we realize that we've all failed, so we come to the New Testament and we find that we can all handle God's actual requirement for us just to believe on him who he has sent. Now he reminds them, Behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens is the Lord's thy God, the earth also, with all that therein is. Everything belongs to God. Look at the universe. It all is his. The heaven of heavens belongs to God. That's the whole universe out there with its billions of galaxies. We read in the Psalms, The earth is the Lord in the fullness thereof, and all they that dwell therein. Here it is declared that the earth also with all that therein is, everything that is in this whole thing actually belongs to God. But Satan has usurped that which belongs to God and has taken control of it. But Jesus came to redeem it back to God and paid the price of redemption so that one day very soon, very, very soon, God is going to lay claim to that which Jesus purchased almost 2,000 years ago. Soon it's going to be God's again. Technically, it is now. Jesus already paid the price. But Satan is still usurping the authority and the power, ruling over the world. But before long, Jesus is going to come and set one foot upon the land and one foot upon the sea and declare that the kingdoms of this world have now become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he's going to take his power and he's going to rule. And then you'll see the world that God intended when he created. People get awfully confused today because they look around at the world that they see today and they think, well, how can a God of love create this mess? How can a God of love allow the Cambodian situation, the starving children? How can a God of love allow children to be born deformed? Right now, the world is in rebellion against God. You don't see the world that God intended. God wants. God plans. You see the world that is suffering the fruit of its rebellion. But one of these days, Jesus is coming to establish God's kingdom, and he's going to rule over the earth. And in that day, you'll see the world that God intended. A world that is without sickness, a world that is without suffering, a world that is without pain a world that is without any deformities. There will be no blind, no lame, no deaf, no dumb. You'll see the world God intended. I can hardly wait. You know, people, when you start talking about, you know, the end of the world, as we know the end of the world is going to be, not really, you know, the big gigantic atomic holocaust and that's the end of the world and there's just this radioactive cloud hovering over it and 
and that's all. That isn't what we're looking for as Christians at all. We're looking for a king to come who will reign in righteousness over the earth and will establish a true righteousness over the earth. And men will live together in peace. And they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks and they'll study war no more. And men will live together in righteousness, in peace. And there will not be a hungry person on the face of the earth when men diverts his military budgets to agricultural development. And that's exactly what the prophet says is going to happen. A world without greed. A world where the strong do not oppress the weak or the rich do not oppress the poor. But where all love and experience the joy and the presence of God dwelling with men. What's so bad about that? I'll tell you, what to me would be a doomsday message would be to say, brethren, brace yourself. You gotta go on in this mess. There's no way out. That to me would be a doomsday prophet. But declare that this mess is soon coming to an end is not a doomsday message at all. It's a message of glory. It's a message of hope. And that's the message that I have to bear to you from God's word. Thank God that we're coming soon to the end of the chaos that man has created upon the earth. And we're going to see the establishment of God's righteous kingdom. The heaven, the heavens is God, the earth is Lord, everything that is in it, and he's going to lay claim to it very soon. Only the Lord had a delight in your fathers to love them, and he chose their seed after them, even you. Therefore, you've been stiff-necked, you've been rebellious, but now, he declares, circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart. Now, the rite of circumcision was given to Abraham, and it was intended as a spiritual thing. The idea was that you were cutting off the flesh life. You weren't to live after the flesh. You were to live after the spirit. And it was the mark of a people who were to be a spiritual people or people who were spiritually oriented and spiritually minded. In contrast to the natural man of the world who is always materialistically minded and mindful of his physical material needs. God's people weren't to be a people dominated by the materialistic things, by the fleshly things. They were to be a people that were dominated by spiritual things, and the sign of that spiritual covenant with God was circumcision. Now, they kept the covenant in a physical way, but not in a spiritual way. And Paul brings out the whole inconsistency of the ritual apart from the reality. And it's possible for people today to have certain religious rituals, but not have any reality of a relationship with God going through the rituals, 
going through the motions, and that was the church of Ephesus. They were still going through the motions, but they didn't have the emotion. Jesus said, you've left your first love. And it's very possible today for people to be in the same status as the children of Israel in which they were depending upon the outward ritual when in reality, God was interested in the inward work this in the heart. And so he said, circumcise therefore the flesh of your heart. And Paul picks this up in Romans, the second chapter, and says, the true circumcision is not of the flesh, but of the heart. My heart alienated from a life of the flesh. My heart no longer longing after the things of the flesh, but a heart that is now after God. And as David, as the... Dear panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for thee as in a dry and a parched land. Oh, that's the kind of people God is looking for. Those who are spiritually minded, spiritually oriented, who are thirsting after God in their heart and in their life and wanting to live a spiritual life that is dedicated unto him. So the encouragement towards the spiritual life. We'll return with more of our verse-by-verse Bible study in the book of Deuteronomy on our next broadcast. As Pastor Chuck continues to teach through the Bible, and we do hope you'll make plans to join us. But right now, if you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply order Deuteronomy 9-10 through when visiting the wordfortoday.org. And while you're there, be sure to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast or sign up for our email subscription. Once again, that's thewordfortoday.org. For those of you wishing to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD. And our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, that's 1-800-272-9673. If you prefer to write, our mailing address is The Word for Today, P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. And now, on behalf of The Word for Today, we'd like to thank all of you who share in supporting this ministry with your prayers and financial support. And be sure to join us again next time as Pastor Chuck continues his verse-by-verse study through the Bible. That's right here on the next edition of The Word for Today. And now, once again, here's Pastor Chuck. May the Lord give you an especially good week this week. Oh, may God deliver you from the power, the strong power of your own fleshly desires that would drag you down and cause you to live like other men in the world around. But may you live a life that is pleasing unto the Lord. May God anoint you and give you that strength that you need to fulfill the commitment that you make in Jesus' name. This program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California. 
Undoubtedly, one of the most glaring signs that our society is in trouble is the breakdown of the family unit. Marriages just aren't making it today, and kids are suffering as they watch the breakup of their homes. Those marriages still holding together are often plagued by conflict and turmoil, making the home a battleground instead of a refuge. That's why The Word for Today would like to present Pastor Chuck Smith's Marriage and Family MP3, where Pastor Chuck discusses basic biblical principles to keep a family's love alive. Each member of the family has a different set of needs and responsibilities. And when you know and apply God's principles, everyone in the family can experience real peace, real joy, and an agape love. To order your copy of the Marriage and Family MP3 by Chuck Smith, call The Word for Today at 800-272-WORD or visit us online at thewordfortoday.org.